Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Man, this Hudson's Bay blanket is itchy. What is going on with HBC and this court case? Plus, talking to those who are vaccine hesitant. Do you know people who don't want the COVID-19 vaccine? And a first-person account of staying in a COVID isolation hotel in Toronto. Let's get to it. What is going on with the Bay? Seriously? The Bay? What are you doing? What's going on over there, HBC? This is just breaking news coming in right now. It appears that Canada's oldest retailer is going to court. I will see you in court. And I'll be wearing this very fashionable Bay coat. It's nice. Looks good on me. It's a bit scratchy. The Bay is applying for a judicial review of the Ontario government's restrictions on non-essential retail. A judicial review, and I'm getting this from a report uh, in the Global and Mail. The Toronto Star has also matched it. We are attempting to match it as well here at Global News, get our hands on this uh, court filing. Uh, This judicial review is a procedure designed for courts to review whether government decisions are reasonable. Are you being reasonable? In its application filed with the Ontario Superior Court, HBC called the lockdowns. Here's the good quotes right here. Here, Oh, let's get to the good stuff. HBC called the lockdowns irrational, arbitrary, and devoid of logic and consistency. I'm sorry. You are devoid of logic and consistency. So that is playing out right now. You may recall that when Toronto went into lockdown, do you recall this? The downtown bay right there across from the Eaton Center said, well, no, we're going to stay open. And people said, well, what do you mean you're going to stay open? We've closed all retail. You're supposed to. And the bay said, no, no, we're essential. We're essential because you can get a biscotti here with this mochaccino. Uh, That's groceries. And we have a tin of shortbread. Yeah, I got a tin of shortbread right over here, Doug. Just go get that. It's essential. And people were like, WTF? That stands for why the farce, just in case you were checking. Uh, what do you What do you mean? And the base said, okay, all right, fine, and closed down. And now HBC has gone to court. Uh, we could ask Doug Ford about it this afternoon at 1 o'clock, but here's the unbelievable thing. No more DOFO show. The DOFO show no more. No. Doug Ford saying that his daily update at 1 p.m., Uh, Now, not going to be happening for the foreseeable future. We're not sure when Doug Ford will be back with its regular daily updates. We're hearing it may not be until the new year. We are getting modeling numbers this afternoon, charts, graphs. I'm hoping for pie charts. I'm a big fan of the pie chart. I'll tell you, that's my favorite kind of chart. The numbers, 1983, which was a good year for me, but not a great number for cases. In the province of Ontario, that is another record. 61,800 tests. Whoa, holy smokes. Look at the size of that testing number. That's wow. That's great. Here's what that's all about, folks. That's because we've changed now the recommendations for kids going back to school. You know what that is? That's, that's runny noses right there. 
And the pending number of tests, 66,000. So it looks like we might be heading right back to where we were before we changed all of this in terms of, you know, what kind of test you need for your kid going to school and all the rest of it. Remember, we had those huge seven-hour lines outside the testing centers, and then they changed things, and the lines went away, and the number of tests went down. Well, now we've changed the requirements again, and the numbers are going up. So is the pending number. Watch for those lines. That's coming our way. Let's get to our big news, uh, and that is with the two Michaels and China. And just a weird development in the last couple of hours. Uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two Canadians, are now marking two years in custody in China. And you may have heard the reports that early this morning a spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry said that the two men had been, quote, arrested, indicted, and tried. And this would be the first public mention that they'd actually been brought to court. And obviously that makes big news, especially on a day when we, you know, we're marking the two years of those two men being in custody in China. But things have changed. And Rachel Gilmore is a journalist with Global News and joins me on the line to help me understand. Hi, Rachel. Hey, how you doing? I'm I'm good. What what in the world? We we all of a sudden had to kind of walk this back. What what's uh, what are Canadian officials telling you? Yeah, so it's been a bit of a scramble this morning. Basically, uh, initially we were told that uh, based off this translation from a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson that the two Michaels had gone to trial, but it turns out that this was actually a mistranslation because in Mandarin. Uh, Well, when we say the term trial in English, we generally mean something really specific. But in Mandarin, that actually refers to the same word refers to the entire process. So that mistranslation led to us thinking that there was this huge development in the case today. And then the Canadian officials actually clarified um, in a phone. I chatted with them on the phone and they clarified that to me. Um, And it turns out that nothing has changed. But yet we did have the the uh, spokesperson for the foreign ministry actually speaking about the case. And is that not somewhat newsworthy even in itself that just even that they're speaking about it? To a certain extent, yeah. It's, you know, every time that this comes up, it's obviously a huge flashpoint in the tensions between Canada and China. Um, you know, they were emphasizing again today that there is no relation uh, between the arrest of uh, Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou and the uh, two detained Canadians, despite the fact that China is repeatedly linking the two cases. Um, But, uh, you know, they're continuing that line where they say that it's a totally separate arrest, despite the fact that Canadian officials and multiple uh, spokespeople have said that this is uh, in apparent retaliation. So, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot of these uh, similar quotes, but it's always newsworthy when they step out and repeat that. So there is still news today in the sense that China is still saying the same thing, but it's not exactly <laughs> new news, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking with Rachel Gilmore, who is a global news journalist uh, covering the uh, two Michaels in China, one of the developments that has happened today is Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, has used the anniversary, this two-year anniversary, uh, as an opportunity to point out uh, that the conservative position is that the liberals have not been tough enough with China. They're too cozy. Can you give me a better sense of what Aaron O'Toole is, is getting at here? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Aaron O'Toole is basically critiquing the Trudeau government, saying that they're taking a weak and timid approach, the, the word that he used towards China. Um, he's saying that a conservative government would do things like work with the Five Eyes allies to impose some sanctions on China. Um, however, 
you know, the, the families and uh, people who are associated with the two detained Canadians have said that they're happy with the approach that the government has been taking. So, you know, you, you have to take that criticism with just a little bit of salt. Um, and then additionally, there are reports out today uh, that we have not verified, but uh, the Globe and Mail has come out today and said that, um, you know, Ch- Canada uh, was actually warning uh, the officials at Global Affairs were warning the government um, to take a step back from its military activity. It undergoes some some training exercises with the People's Liberation Army in China. And uh, a document today reported by the Globe and Mail says that these um, exercises, uh, they the government was told to try to take a step back from that due to sort of intellectual property potentially being shared and whatnot. Um, so Aaron O'Toole came out today and kind of slammed the government over that, accusing of tr- accusing Trudeau of having a sort of cozy relationship with China. Although I think that, uh, you know, watching the headlines emerging about the relationship between the two, <laughs> I think uh, we could describe the relationship between Canada and China as anything but cozy these days. Yeah, I just looking forward a little bit, Rachel, as we look into 2021 and the possibility of a federal election, possibly in the spring or the fall, uh, how vulnerable do you think the liberal government is on China? If not, in particular, the the two Michaels in that case, but just Canada's position vis-a-vis China and, and how Canada is conducting its foreign affairs, how vulnerable do you think the liberals and the Trudeau government is? I think that China has always been, it's sort of a difficult one for any government to navigate. Um, so, you know, and that can always lead to it becoming a source of criticism, no matter who is in government, because of the reality that, you know, China is such a powerful player on the world stage that there's sort of this kind of push and pull that happens where, and, you know, a global, you know, uh, world where we have trade relationships and all of these various complex relations, um, you know, you have to kind of do a little dance to be able to navigate uh, these relationships properly um, in the best interest of Canadians. So, you know, that can be a source of criticism. And it's definitely a line that we've seen the uh, Conservatives take towards Trudeau um, and his government, you know, they repeatedly accused Trudeau of being soft on China. Um, but, you know, we are also seeing that these tensions have escalated. And if, if the Trudeau government was being soft on China, would that be happening? These are sort of the questions and the debates that we might see come up. Um, so uh, but I think that you can you can rest assured that uh, in an election, kind of the gloves come off and we'll see uh, a fair amount of criticism on a number of issues. And I'm sure China will be among them. Rachel, great having you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thanks for talking with me. I appreciate it. That is Rachel Gilmore, who is a global news journalist, and you can read her story about what has happened with the two Michaels, what has changed and what has not. That's online now at globalnews.ca. I have one last China note before we take a quick break and come back and talk about vaccines and how we talk to those that are resistant to vaccines and taking a COVID-19 vaccine. Here's my final China note. I love this one. China's Civil Aviation Administration, so basically this is the organization that oversees air travel in China and Chinese airlines. It has released new guidelines for the country's airline industry. Uh, And here is the one that really stuck out to me. Oh boy. Quote, it is recommended that cabin crew members, so that would be your flight attendants, wear disposable diapers to avoid using lavatories 
barring special circumstances, to avoid infection risks. So, man, you thought your flight attendant was grumpy before. (laughs) Now she's got a pants full. When do we get the vaccine, people? And the Solicitor General of this province, uh, in an interview with uh, some pool cameras and just a few minutes ago, was talking about injection sites and where they're going to be, and we'll get you an update on that and what the Solgen of Ontario is saying about it. But, uh, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of people who want the vaccine, but if you've been listening to this program over the last couple of days, there are a lot of people certainly call in here and say, no, thank you. No way, no how, certainly not in the early going. So how do we talk to people who are vaccine hesitant? Well, my producer, Sheba Siddiqui, forwarded me this, and this just jumped right out at me. There's a Twitter thread that begins this way. How to talk with vaccine hesitant people. A thread for epidemiologists and humans in general on what the research suggests and what has worked for me in the past, and the author of that thread is Dr. Maria Sundaram, who is an infectious disease epidemiologist and fellow at the University of Toronto. Welcome. What's up, Doc? Hey, how's it going? I, that never gets old. All right, <laughs> let's begin. Let's begin with how do we begin? Let's talk with the humans in general. Let's address them first. How do we talk to people who are vaccine hesitant? Yeah, so this is a great question. I think it's worth answering. I think there's a lot of us that kind of feel like, well, you know what, I just can't have that conversation. And I will say, in my experience, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot less contentious than you might imagine in, in a lot of scenarios. A lot of people just have questions and they want answers. And I get that. I'm a researcher, and that's pretty much all I do all day for my job. So I usually try to start from a place of common ground. I, I get why people are curious. I, I get curious, too. Um, and I want to sort of share what I know with them so that they can feel safe and good about getting a vaccine. Okay, if the, if the initial response is no way, no how, how do you find <laughs> common ground from there? So, you know, if someone comes to me and their perspective is not, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a little on the fence, I'm a little curious. If their perspective is like, absolutely not, I'm not even having this discussion, you know, I can't force them to change their mind. And I shouldn't try. Uh, That's just like hitting your head against a wall. So usually if I am in that scenario, I say, okay, you know, I get it. Um, I can't force you to do anything. Um, If you do have questions in the future, definitely let me know and I'll do my best to help you kind of navigate what's out there, navigate the information, navigate the literature. All right, let's go to the the next response, and this is the one that we're going to open up our phone lines a little bit later on where people will call in. This is the one I get all over and over again, which is uh, just real skepticism at the speed in which this vaccine has been approved. We've never approved a vaccine like this as fast before, and therefore we just don't know what the long-term effects would be, and it's not safe. I'll wait a year. Yeah, So this is a very common uh, feeling that people have, uh, and I totally get why they would have it. Uh, We usually take way longer to develop vaccines. Um, So I can say the reason that I'm very confident about this vaccine, uh, even given this short timeline, is that every single step that would have occurred if this had taken 10 or 15 years, unbelievably, it is the case that all of those steps still did happen. Um, just at a way shorter timeline. And how is that possible? A couple of different reasons. One of them is that we scrunched all of those steps together. 
So some of them happen at the same time, whereas usually they happen one after another over a way longer time frame. Uh, that's because we had a lot of money and political will. We all decided as a society we really need this vaccine. Another really big reason is that we already had seen a couple of other coronaviruses that do cause severe disease. One of them is the original SARS, um, and another one is called MERS-CoV. Um, so we already kind of had a, an idea of where to start. And then the third thing, and I think really, really important here, is tens of thousands of people volunteered to be uh, trial participants in these, these studies. And if those people hadn't agreed uh, this would have taken a lot longer. So we really owe them a debt of gratitude, too. Let me just play off that because I think the comeback, and this is what I hear, is, okay, that, that's all well and good that we scrunched in the time frame in terms of development, but nothing but time will tell us whether or not there are longer-term adverse effects. So that's also a really good question. And I um, I want to kind of reassure people about vaccine safety and the safety outcomes. So the reason that we feel pretty comfortable about the existing safety profile is that um, vaccine safety outcomes happen kind of on the timeline of your immune system reacting to the vaccine. And usually that is pretty quick. It takes um, usually pr- like two weeks after you get the second shot to have kind of the maximum amount of antibody. And this is why, for example, when you get your flu shot every year, it's not until two weeks after you get your flu shot that you're really considered vaccinated. And that's because your immune system is building all that antibody. So that's kind of the time frame that we're thinking about when we think about your immune system and if you're feeling kind of junky, if you have a headache, if you're a little tired, that kind of thing, um, just to be safe. Pfizer took a two-month window, so instead of two weeks, it's eight weeks, um, to look at safety outcomes. And what we see from those outcomes is that it really is quite favorable, kind of, kind of on the order, more or less, as your average flu vaccine, maybe with some more, you know, kind of discomfort as I'm, you know, discomfort meaning like headache, uh, kind of fatigue, uh, and injection site pain after the second dose. Well, that's that's a fascinating response. I appreciate that. Uh, can we just talk a little bit about what uh, developed yesterday with this news about um, allergies and those that have strong allergies might not be able to get it? What do we know? I mean, do we know, like, for example, anaphylaxis, that that would rule you out to get the at least the Pfizer version uh, out of the gate? So, yeah, so there is a recommendation in Canada that if you have had um, that kind of a reaction to any of the components in the vaccine, but you should not get the vaccine for now. You should hold off for now. Um, the UK identified two people that had this kind of severe allergic reaction um, after they received the vaccine. They were both people who had those kinds of reactions in the past to other stuff. Um, they both carried EpiPen-like devices. Uh, and so this is perhaps not terribly unexpected, but we have to very carefully, obviously, investigate whether this is related to the vaccine. Um, And so that's happening right now, that investigation. And what's really wonderful and reassuring to me um, about this is that not only were these, um, these kind of severe allergic reactions identified super fast, but then uh, the UK was able to turn around and make a decision and a recommendation also super fast about this uh, while we learn a little bit more about it. And so that's exactly the way that our safety reporting mechanisms are supposed to work. Um, so I found that actually really reassuring. So the opposite of, I think, some people's reaction was totally <laughs> the opposite to that. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's also really helpful to note that um, those reactions that happened in the Pfizer clinical trial, and you can go, um, for example, you can go on the Health Canada website and look at this information yourself if you're interested. Um, they recorded about equal numbers and very rare numbers in both the treatment and the control group. I think in the treatment, it was about point. 0.6%. And then in the control group, the people who received the placebo is about 0.5%. Um, so not necessarily enough to jump out at us and say, hey, this is a real big problem, but definitely enough for us to say, okay, we need to keep tabs on this and make sure that um, we don't uh, endanger anyone. And so that's why we have these safety reporting mechanisms that are so lightning fast. Man, I have I have learned so much and I really <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you so, so very glad. much. Oh, that my is pleasure. Dr. Maria Sanderum, who is an infectious disease epidemiologist and a fellow at U of T. Please take care. Thank you again. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Wow. Man, that was illuminating. Was it not? COVID-19 is clearly spreading very quickly, and throughout our community, you just have to take a look at the numbers and the high test positivity numbers, especially in portions of Toronto and obviously in northern Peel, in uh, North Brampton, where it's pretty clear it is traveling unchecked. And as a result, you can get COVID-19 and just not even know where. If that is something that is happening, and it's happening more and more. And it happened to my next guest, who is a reporter with the National Observer, Emma McIntosh. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Welcome home, by the way. So glad to hear that you're better uh, and that uh, things have worked out. But you, you, you've you got COVID-19. How are you feeling now? You know, I'm feeling okay. Today is a really good day, and it's really great to be home. Um, but the, the long-term effects are definitely lingering. Anything more than a 10-minute walk is too much for me. And um, before this, I was really healthy and active. I used to bike all the way from one end of the city to the other without much effort. All right, let's take us back to when you started to feel something um, and, and when you knew that something was up. Sure. So it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was walking home from getting a coffee in Kensington Market, um, a takeout coffee. And I, I started to get this weird cough, this cough that was very deep in my lungs. Um, it didn't seem to accomplish anything, and it, it rattled my whole body. And even though it was only once every half hour, I felt like something was wrong. Um, by the next night, it was very clear that this was probably COVID-19. Um, I had a fever, I had chills and muscle aches, and my sense of smell was starting to decline. So at that point, you obviously, you know, uh, think that you might have it, you suspect that you have it, do you go for a test? What, what, can you explain your, at, at this point your living arrangement, because that's an important part of the story. Sure. So as soon as I started to get the cough, um, I aborted all my plans for that afternoon. I had wanted to go grocery shopping. Um, I just went home. I told my roommates right away. I live with three other people, and this is a classic Toronto housing problem. Um, it's a pretty tight space. So I share a bathroom with one of those roommates, and it's only separated from his room by this curtain and then this little glass door with a lot of gaps in it. So if I'm sick, there is not much chance that, you know, it's not going to spread. Um, but as soon as I knew I was sick, I let everybody know. I booked a test for myself for the next morning, and I started wearing a mask whenever I had to leave my room and staying in my room as much as possible. 
And that seems to have been a really, really important decision because no one else in my house got sick. But you knew that you probably couldn't stay there for any length of time, at least not without putting your roommates in some pretty significant danger of exposure to the virus. So what happened next? Yeah, exactly. It was it was scary. It felt like every time I breathed out, it was poison, and sooner or later it was going to reach somebody I love. So the next morning, as soon as I got, like Tuesday morning, so two days after I started to have symptoms, I got my positive test result back. And right away, I called the Toronto Public Health Hotline, and I asked them if they could both rush my file and if they could get me into this isolation hotel that I had heard about from a press release a few months earlier. And my hope was that if I got out of the house as quickly and as smoothly as I could, that maybe my roommates wouldn't be at risk. Okay, so you make that request. Um, how long does it take before you know that you might actually be able to get a room at this hotel? A couple of hours later, I got a call back. And I think right away, the contact tracer understood how um, how urgent it was. I, I could hear her fingers like flying across her keyboard as she filled out my application. Um, I called at like around 9 a.m. I got the call back at 11.30 and by 1.30, I had a room confirmed. Um, they gave me 90 minutes to pack and then a taxi came to pick me up and carried me to the hotel. I was there by 4 p.m. the same day. So this is a, a Toronto hotel that has been converted to an isolation area. Um, and, and in you go. So t- t- give me a sense, walk me through that process as, as you go into that room. Sure. So um, you walk into the lobby and it's like very clear that this is not a normal hotel anymore. There's plexiglass everywhere. There's pretty much no one there except for a paramedic and a security guard and the person working the front desk. Right away, they asked me for my name and directed me to the elevator um, where I would go up alone. And you don't get a room key because they don't want you going in and out of your room. If you're going in, you have to stay there. So they said, you know, just walk down the hallway and your room will be the door that's open. Go go in and shut it and stay there. <laughs> and so um, I get up there and it's, you know, on the inside, really just like a normal hotel. It's like all these soothing gray colors and um, there's a big window overlooking a parking lot and, you know, a big comfy bed. Um, really like a very comfortable, safe place to, to recover. But it's it's still kind of a weird thing. One of the, the things that I love that you tweeted out was a picture of the TV remote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was definitely a bit weird. So the TV remote was covered in this layer of plastic. And in, in your hotel welcome package, they instruct you to not remove the layer of plastic. Some other weird things were missing, too. You know, there's no Gideon's Bible in the drawer like <laughs> normally. There's no iron, even though there's like an iron shelf. It's like iron-shaped. Um, no hangers. And no duvet. Um, it seems like they kind of gone over the room with a fine tooth comb to make sure that there were as few items in there as possible that they would have to. Wait, wait a minute. No, no, no covers. Did you bring your own blankets? No, no, there was like a, there was sheets on the bed, but only sheets. Um, there was no duvet. So I had to ask for an extra blanket, which was very warm, very fuzzy. Okay. All <laughs> right. Now, wait a minute. Are you, are you, you said that there was no key. Can you, can you leave the hotel room? Like if you um, wanted? Oh, yeah. So it's a voluntary isolation center. So if I had called them and said, you know, I have had enough, I need to go home right now, uh, that would have been allowed. They would have arranged for me to go home. 
But because you're legally required to stay in isolation if you have COVID-19, they ask that you just go home and stay there. Um, if you leave your room, you leave your room. You can't come back. So um, definitely. Oh, so if you walk, if you decide to go for a walk down the hall, that's that. Yes, that is not allowed. And I actually heard hotel staff yell at one of my floor mates who who might not have picked up on that rule and uh, open their door to go for a stroll. Right, because you can't go down the hall to the ice machine or get yourself a pop or, you know, hit the pool. Right, exactly. Anything you need, you have to ask for it to be delivered. Uh, So that brings us to the food. Um, And how'd you eat when you were there? I mean, I know how you ate. You you put something (laughs) in your mouth, but give me a sense of how was it? Sure. So three times a day, um, I would hear this crinkling of a paper bag outside my door, and that would mean that it was mealtime. Um, there was some kind of wonderful chef working somewhere to deliver these like absolutely spectacular meals to a whole bunch of sick people without a sense of taste. Um, and <laughs> we get two snacks a day. It was plenty of food and it was honestly really good. I want to know how they developed this menu. Like we're talking mac and cheese with bacon. We're talking salmon. I mean, the, it was lovely. But um, Emma, <laughs> Emma, you, you, you know for a fact that it could have tasted like ash and you wouldn't have known the difference. <laughs> well, only for a couple of days. My sense of taste came back by the end of it. And uh, also the menu started repeating after a week. So I was able to go back and find out that it actually was wonderful all along. Because <laughs> in the early going, you were actually doing some experiments of like, what is it that you could smell and what you're just smelling everything. Right. Yeah. Um, I also wouldn't recommend licking a lime if you've lost your sense of taste. It Mm. is horrible. It is absolutely horrible. Um, In the end, like before my taste came back, I could only pick up to something salty or sweet or sour or bitter. And if you take away all the flavor of a lime, you're pretty much left with sour. So fair warning. (laughs) That's important information. So you come to the end of your time there, uh, and obviously you, you've recovered from the, you're not showing any symptoms anymore. What happens next? So every day I had this contact tracer or this case manager calling me to see how I was doing. And um, on the final day, they did a final check-in once over with my symptoms. And I am having some long-term symptoms for sure, but nothing that would indicate that I was still transmissible or that I was still actively sick. Um, So I get the all clear to leave. They arrange to have someone pick me up and take me home. I have a couple of hours to pack. And at the end of your stay, the paramedic on site comes upstairs to walk you out. Um, They were kind enough to bring a luggage cart for me. Uh, And um, two absolutely wonderful city Toronto employees drove me home. So back right where I started, on my front steps. <laughs> and here you are home, but no chef to deliver meals. It is it is an adjustment going back to cooking for myself. I was very grateful for that. <laughs> well, uh, Emma, we are uh, thrilled that you're home and that you're feeling better. Um, all the very best and towards a complete and 100% recovery. And thank you for spending some time with us to tell your story today. Thanks for having me. I hope other folks know that the Isolation Hotel is nothing to be afraid of. If you need it, it's there. Thank you again. That is Emma McIntosh, who is a Queen's Park reporter with the National Observer, and you can read her story about her stay in the Isolation Hotel. It is online now at nationalobserver.com.
That is the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show, weekdays starting at noon.